Live from Studio G at Goodman Law Group's headquarters, this is The Good Law Pod, a show that dives into your questions about all things HOA. Welcome to today's podcast. This is Clint Goodman with Goodman Law Group, and I'm here today with Jennifer Brandon with Jennings Strauss, a law firm in Arizona. And uh, you guys are national too, right? We have a presence in D.C. as well, yes. Fantastic. So today's podcast is an interesting topic. We're going to be talking about what we call in the legal profession e-discovery. And it translates to some very important points for managers and boards to keep in mind in HOAs and condominiums because it always has to do with electronic data. And what? so today we're going to talk about what electronic data is E-discovery is what what happens in the middle of litigation. So if you're a board member or manager wondering if your emails or other electronic data could be subject to subpoena or disclosure in a court case and what the ramifications could be when it comes to that, we're going to talk a little bit about that. So Jennifer, could you give us a little bit of your background? Sure. Um, I started my career as a paralegal with Snell and Wilmer, also an Arizona-based law firm, and started managing data and databases back before um, even the federal rules of civil procedure changed to incorporate e-discovery. And I was there for about the first seven years of my career, and then I uh, moved over to a smaller firm, Mann, Barons, and Wisner. And at that law firm, I kind of became the de facto litigation support person before that was you know, really a, a job title. And during that time, in 2006, the federal rules of civil procedure changed, and e-discovery um, you know, really ramped up, and we had to get our arms around that. So I continued um, working with Mann Barons in that capacity, and later 2012, uh, that firm actually split, and I joined a couple of the partners that took their practice over to Jennings Strauss. And I came on at Jennings Strauss as, again, kind of a de facto, you know, database admin, litigation support person, and they recognized the value of, you know, adding that actual position into the firm. So uh, 2012-2013, I became the litigation support practice uh, project manager there and grew our department. Now we've got an analyst that works under us, a project manager that works with us. We've got a a managed services contract with a a group that um, handles our relativity uh, data hosting and um, discovery process. So we've really taken it from the ground up and and built it into, into Jennings Strauss. And um, so now I'm oversee all of our data um, that comes in during the discovery process. I consult with attorneys and case teams on projects for uh, collecting and harvesting electronic discovery, then hosting it and producing it. So that's uh, in a nutshell <laughs> what I what my position is today. Yeah, it's fantastic. In fact, I first saw you when you instructed in a state bar continuing education course uh, called e-discovery. I don't remember the title, but it was e-discovery something. I think it was a boot camp. But yeah, you're yeah, right. Yeah. Boot camp. And I was taking it for my continuing education credits to keep my state bar license active. And I learned a lot from that class. And so thank you very much for coming in and spending some time with us to talk about e-discovery. Sure. Absolutely. Yeah. I'm glad that that program was a success. We, um, are continuing on as the technology working group for the state bar now and did a series of what we called tech talks at the ABA conference in June. And we'll be doing a follow-up series to that in June of 2019 at that conference. 
That's great. So since we're here on e-discovery, in your mind, what is kind of like a layman's definition of e-discovery? I'd say that a layman's definition of e-discovery is, is really um, any data that's involved in a case that's electronic. And um, one of the things, you know, when I visit with our attorneys in our office and, you know, sometimes the first initial reaction I get is we don't, we're not going to have any e-discovery in this matter. And we kind of try to refine that to get them to understand that, you know, it really exists in every case, unless you're literally dealing with a client that doesn't use computers in any capacity, which in this day and age is obviously very rare. So um, we really consider, you know, e-discovery to be any any electronic data that would exist throughout the discovery process. Seems like a big part of any litigation, right? Absolutely. You know, I mean, just even emails, um, you know, even small businesses. It used to be where, you know, e-discovery was, was looked at as only being a part of larger litigations. But, you know, even sole practitioners or individual business owners, even individuals themselves, I mean, everyone's communicating somehow, you know, via, via tech, whether it's email, text, messaging, um, you know, saving files to their computers. I don't, I don't know too many people who are still doing, you know, paper. Everything's generated on a computer now. So, so I know that lots of my clients hear that about, you know, make sure that you write emails appropriately because someday they could be disclosable. A lot of them don't hear about texts, mm-hmm. their phones. Yeah. So you're saying that if a manager is communicating with her HOA board uh, via text about a relevant topic in a trial, that that actually could be subpoenaed and obtained before the trial? Yeah, absolutely. Um, It's really, you know, coming down to knowing what to ask for during the litigation process. And that's part of where I come in and work with our case teams and try and attorney teams to, you know, put together maybe a list or, or a questionnaire. We call it a custodian questionnaire to start to try to determine, you know, how are you messaging? How are you communicating? Um, and when texts come up, that's definitely something that, that we've asked for, you know, to be turned over. We sometimes have to get a vendor involved to collect the actual data off of the iPhone or, you know, whatever device it is that they're using to pull relevant text messages. And it even morphs, you know, into other platforms of communication because we all know that, you know, there's, there's emails and then there's texting, but now there's a variety of platforms out there, you know, WhatsApp and Snapchat and, you know, all these WhatsApp, like the, the app you just download and you can call if you, as long as you have Wi-Fi. Right. Yeah. And that, that's a huge messaging tool. Um, I think it's used more even in the, in the European countries than it is here, but I know I I use it when I go out of country. Yeah. A lot of people. So yeah, WhatsApp and, um, a couple other ones that, you know, cause there's a variety of, of platforms that, that people do use to, to message, um, the teams communication, like with Microsoft coming out with 365, um, Slack is another, uh, collaborative tool that we see a lot of people using. So getting to the bottom of, of how people are communicating and, and what messaging platforms they're using to talk about potentially relevant data, you know, any of that could be considered, um, discoverable. So if I've got a board that likes to meet virtually through Skype, or Zoom, or any other application out there? Is that potentially e-discoverable? I yes, absolutely. It's potentially discoverable if it's if it's relevant. And so what's the process recorded. for that then? I know like uh, a lot of the clients out there will be interested to know the procedure. So you're in the middle of litigation on a case, and you're evaluating what's going to be subpoenaed, what's going to be asked of opposing counsel to provide it to you. How do you go about getting information from Skype or WhatsApp or whatever? We normally don't go through the messaging platforms or the the software 
programs directly, and we would normally get a vendor involved or services uh, person who would come in and collect that data from us from the source. So they come in kind of as a third party person, um, work between the two parties, and you know will access the data either remotely, you know, or in some situations they've actually have to turn over a device for these people to pull that data off of it. But we're seeing a lot more of it being done remotely, which streamlines it for everybody because nobody wants to give up their device to have it collected by your cell phone is what you're referring to. Exactly. Your, your cell phone, your tablet, your iPad, your surface, you know, whatever device it is that you're using to communicate about potentially relevant data that could be in a litigation. So rather than um, trying to subpoena that information, which is usually you know, fairly like unsuccessful, we um, engage these vendors who will come in and, and collect the data off of those devices. So if I've got um, a vendor, for example, because you know we represent the HOAs, mm-hmm. and there's a dispute between a vendor of the association I'm just going to make one of these things up. Sure. Landscaping company, for example. And the board is angry. Landscaping's company is angry. They're disputing what the terms of a multi-million dollar contract are going to be or could the breaches of a multi-million dollar contract. And e-discovery is a big issue there. And they believe that the landscaper has a lot of relevant information on his cell phone. He's not just going to give that to the board. So what do you do in that scenario? Well, usually when I consult with case teams on things like that, you try to get a meet and confer set up between the attorneys to talk about where the relevant data resides and ask them you know, to produce it in a request for production of documents or you can agree on a custodian list, um, you know, wh- which, which people had relevant data on a certain matter and where did they keep that data. And you can get to that information by either interrogatories or custodian questionnaire or something like that. Once you determine where that data sits, then it can, it's argued you know, that that data is, is relevant to the matter and they do have to turn turn it over and if they don't turn it over and the attorney says he's not going to turn it over or the the attorney just can't control the client do you go to the court the judge at that point yeah i think they that the legal you know rules are i think there's a meet and confer that has to take place between between counsel and then if that doesn't get resolved then it gets escalated to you know motion to compel and would go yeah. potentially before a judge. We just had that happen where we just got a motion to compel granted. I was, we were talking about this before the podcast. Oh, yeah. And uh, yeah, we had an order just recently, which is kind of rare to get an order granted and a motion to compel because usually judges <laughs> just want the parties to work it out. Yeah. In that situation just didn't happen. And so now everything that that individual has, we get. Oh, okay. And that was related to? It's related e- to e-discovery. e-discovery. Sure. All of the ESI which raises another thing. So sometimes I refer to ESI. You and I know what that means, but, but our client base doesn't sometimes know what that means. What does ESI mean? So ESI stands for electronically stored information. And again, it's just really any electronic data that's generated on a computer, on a device, stored electronically. That being, you know, on it, on an actual device, on a local computer, on a network, on a server, or even in the cloud. Yeah. So basically summarizes what you've been talking about. All these different things that you can get your hands on is ESI. Absolutely. Yeah. So just to summarize then for, for, to bring it home to my client base and the managers and boards that like to listen to these podcasts, uh, I'm sure that now they know email is potentially discoverable. 
text messages, especially with business phones, I would imagine, right? Yes. Because there, are there privileges with business phones? Well, and that gets into a whole nother, you know, realm of conversation, whether or not the phone is a personal phone or it's the company issued device and, you know, what policies the company makes you adhere to if you are, you know, using a company issued device. But, you know, generally, if you're using your personal phone to do business and personal, I mean, the, the phone is, is subject to dis- discovery because you, you're conducting business to a potentially discoverable situation. So it can get a little, a little tricky, which is why we engage the third party vendors, uh, because it gives people a little bit more comfort level. So if we have to tell someone, look, we need to collect your iPhone backup, but we're going to be able to do that electronically or remotely, excuse me. So go ahead and plug in, back your stuff up to the cloud. Our third party vendor is going to go in, they're going to pull a complete image of everything that's been backed up to the cloud. But, you know, we're not interested in your personal information. We're not interested in personal photos. We just want a collection of text messages or, you know, something else that could be, you know, relevant on the phone. The third party vendors are usually good at, at calling that down and then giving to our law firm just what we actually need and what we're going to look through. So provides a little bit of peace of mind to those users that, you know, we're not going to take personal data and it's going to be, you know, going, sure. <laughs> going out to different places. Yeah. That'd be, that'd be something that I would be worried about if I were a board member, for example, cause I'm on my board, I have mm-hmm. a board, so I'm, I'm on my board and it'd be, <laughs> I text other board members. And, uh, so yeah, I, I think that hiring third party vendors is important. And I would assume, I know at least for my firm, we have a confidentiality agreement and an agreement entered into between the parties that the third party is going to gather the information as you stated, but it's going to remain completely confidential, all the personal unrelated items. And if there's a dispute, then we let the judge handle that before it's actually turned over and maybe do what we call it for the audience an in-camera review. Have you had that happen before where you end up getting into this dispute about what can be turned over to your firm and then you end up having the judge to do, um, have to do an in-camera review of the information to decide what's personal versus and, and non-disclosable versus what's relevant and or may lead to relevant information in the trial? We haven't come across that so much with personal information just because I think we get to the bones of, you know, deciphering what's personal information, what's not personal information, and, and just getting produced to us data that is either potentially relevant and maybe some of it's non-responsive or maybe there's an argument over privilege and I see those issues getting getting taken to the judges and things like that, um, debates over, you know, what's subject to attorney's eyes only and things like that, but haven't crossed too much, um, with the personal information versus business information. And most of the, the clients that we work with are, have, you know, have a good separation between, um, corporate and personal information. That's not always true. I mean, we, we do have some clients that, you know, tend to mix and we've gotten into that a little bit with Gmail accounts where, you know, we've said, well, you've mixed your, your personal Gmails with, with your business Gmails. And, you know, now we need to get all of those and, and segregate those out. And so usually just try to work out some kind of a search terms or, you know, even if we're confident that the the client can put all of those, you know, documents or emails into a specific folder. We might grab that whole account, but we're just going to hone in just on that one folder that they put together for us saying this is everything related to, you know, X case or something like that. So a lot of consulting, you know, goes into and in figuring out a structure where we can, you know, give everybody else a comfort level of what, you know, what's going to be taken from their devices and things like that. Because again, you know, as you know, too, we don't have any interest in, in the personal stuff that doesn't matter sure. to the case. So, sure. 
Unless he's talking about being convicted felon or something. Well, yeah. I mean, you never know. Something could come up. (laughs) Right. Yeah. You know, email is a big thing when it comes to our line of work because that's, you know, that's just how everybody communicates nowadays. And there are times where we win and lose cases based on emails. Absolutely. Emails between the board, emails between both the the opposing party and the, the homeowner in a community and the board or the manager. And those are very relevant. I I can't think of any case in the last couple of years where I haven't attached some sort of email as an exhibit. Is that, is that normal for you? Yes, I think it's, it's definitely normal because like you just said, I think that's the way that everybody communicates now. You know, we're not, we're not writing letters. We're not typing letters. Um, it used to even be, I think, you know, going back some years, um, where, email was used to transmit correspondence. So we still had, you know, people who were drafting letters in Microsoft Word and, and that kind of thing. Then they'd scan them back in and attach them to the email. And I think that's even gone completely by the wayside now. You don't, you don't see letters getting attached to emails. You just, the email is the communication. And I think that's pretty, you know, pretty global. And then, you know, like we said a few minutes ago, it's really segued into, you know, even getting away from email and getting onto texting and messaging platforms, which has become, mm-hmm. you know, fairly standard. And we see that, um, especially we get into some construction work. So we've got project managers that are involved, you know, in the, in the matters and, you know, they're, they're not emailing each other. They're, they're messaging back and forth, IMing, you know, different things like that. So salespeople are, you know, constantly on a messaging platform sure. versus email. So I think it's relevant really and, and exists in, in every matter. Okay, so here's an example for you. Tell me what what you do here. Uh, You're in the middle of litigation on a case, and we talked just a a little while ago about how you work with opposing counsel or the party on how to get this information. Let's just stick on the email subject. Let's say they have a Gmail account, and you know there's relevant or emails in there or or emails that may lead to relevant information. So you know there's something discoverable in there that is going to help your side of the case, or at least you want to know if it's going to help (laughs) your side of the case. Uh, You meet and confer with the opposing party or their attorney, and they put together everything that they think is there, but you're not quite sure they did a good job of it, so you want to hire a third party. And you work it out with the attorney, and you're all good to go. The the third party images the Gmail account. Um, Just taking a step back, though, so in that meet and confer, you're asking the opposing attorney to give you the username, like the email address with the password, right? right. And that's through what, what you call the, the interrogatories or the non-uniform interrogatories in right. the discovery process. Mm-hmm. So for the listeners, interrogatories are just questions. So when, when you're sued or when, when you're suing somebody in discovery, there's requests for admissions, requests for productions, non-uniform interrogatories are just questions that you ask of opposing counsel. So... Are there any, what, list all the email accounts. That could be considered a non-uniform interrogatory, right? Sure. So you know what all the email accounts that person has. And then the next step is to meet and confer on those to get all the passwords so that your third party can get in and actually image every single email in existence. Yeah. So what we normally do with respect to the passwords is we ask the end user to temporarily change their password to something like, you know, generic that they give to us or not to us, but give to the third party vendor who's going to get involved to collect the email. So we ask them just to temporarily change it. Then our 
third-party vendor can get in, get the collection out, tell them it's done, they change it back. So Mm -hmm. we don't ever actually know what their password is. And when you're actually imaging everything, you don't get any passwords. It's only the the actual emails that you're seeing. That's correct. Yeah. Because passwords are irrelevant for the lawsuit. Irrelevant. Yeah. Yeah. We we don't, you know, I can't think of why we would need, you know, a a password unless it's an adversarial situation and you're trying to, you know, get into a device that are not wanting to let you and you're trying to get the password. But in a, in a, you know, friendly exchange, the, our protocol is normally to ask them, go ahead and change that to something completely random, or we might even give them a password use this. And then once you're done, you can go ahead and send it or set it back to your regular password. And, you know, then they feel a little bit more comfortable you know, doing that. And no, nobody actually has their password out there. That's interesting. So when it comes to the document creation, cause we all work in word products or max products like pages or whatever we, ha- we all have, um, does it ever become relevant in litigation that you've seen where the ver- different versions of a document become applicable or different versions of a PDF are applicable? Yeah, we do. And um, when it gets down, and I don't want to get too you know technical talking about processing data and things like that, um, but we do have processing settings. So for example, if we collect data and there's multiple versions of a Word document, maybe redlining was turned on, uh, we have settings in the processing engine so that we leave those turned on. So in the viewer, when we go to look at this data, we're actually able to see then each version of that with redlining. And that does, you know, definitely comes into play. I've seen it on contracts and contract negotiation and things like that, where that word documents being sent back and forth to two parties and people are making constant edits and things like that to it. So, so definitely. Yeah. Or I, I know recently in one of our cases, we had a PDF of the agreement that we had. And then suddenly during litigation, the PDF that was disclosed was different. And we had to prove that they modified it post agreement. Oh, wow. Were have you, you seen to, that before? I, I have. Um, I mean, I haven't actually seen it in one of our cases where we've had to, you know, go back and, and find out that anybody has edited documents. But there are precautions that we take during, you know, gathering information, producing information to prevent that exact thing from happening. So yeah, we, it was pretty easy for them. They, they weren't very smart about it. It was pretty easy to establish the electronic trail that they had made it at its post agreement. You know, mm-hmm. the data is it just doesn't go away, right? It doesn't go away. It's, it's worse than even pen and paper from, from what I've seen. And here's the next question for you then. Data doesn't go away. So if I know I've written something that's going to screw up my case and I decide I'm going to start destroying evidence, I delete my Gmail account, I delete all the e- or I delete a batch of emails in Gmail, and then I go into the delete folder and permanently delete them. Can you still see that stuff? Can you still get your hands on that stuff? I think the answer to that is yes and no. And that really is a question more for the the vendors and the forensic people who can get in there. And I do get mixed answers about that. And they they say it depends on a lot of factors. Um, I think, you know, different... Email companies have different retention policies themselves for how long they keep deleted deleted email. I say deleted deleted, meaning you've deleted it, and then you've also deleted it from your trash. Um, I believe it gets kept for a certain amount of time, but that's not necessarily the same across the board for you know Gmail, Yahoo, Comcast, you know, things like that. 
Um, with the phones, I know a lot of deleted content can be captured because it basically deletes, but it still sits on the phone until it's rewritten with new information. So you may... So you're talking about text now. Yeah. Or even if you're pulling email from an exchange server off a phone, you know, people are deleting information off their phones. Um, it may just sit in a temporary deleted state until they've deleted enough information that it starts to overwrite. So you're not ever really sure how much deleted data that you can get in those kinds of situations, but it's definitely possible to to capture the items that have been deleted. So here's a question on the deleted, deleted, right? Mm -hmm. So even assuming there was a big purge, like Gmail purged the server, so you know there's no way you're going to ever see the content again, is it possible for the third party to actually show that there was a deleted, deleted and, and show that, okay, there used to be an email, now it's been deleted and it's been permanently purged by Gmail to help imply an admission of guilt through deletion or spoliation of evidence? I'm not sure so much on the electronic trail of deleting it. Uh, we've seen a lot of situations where we might find that email from another source. Maybe somebody else was CC'd on it or, you know, it was exchanged between other people. We get it from another, another party. And then we look in say, you know, the defendant's collection and we say, Hey, this, this email is not there. You know, why, why wouldn't it be there in your collection? It showed up over here. And that's how we've gotten to, you know, the bottom of saying, you know, what happened to the emails and, and going down that rabbit hole of, you know, what was your process of deleting emails? What's your retention policy? You know, things of that nature. And you're probably going to end up having a four hour conversation with them in a deposition to find all that <laughs> stuff out. Right. Right. And it's up to the attorney to, you know, get them a little flustered and <laughs> spill the beans or something. Right. Exactly. Okay. So now... When it comes to sanctions, let's talk a little bit about sanctions. And what I mean by that is, okay, we've got an e-discovery dispute, meaning the parties really aren't able to resolve their problem. And now it's time to go to the judge because one party wants a bunch of emails and the other party is not giving it to them. Or they, they, the, the one party proves that the other party deleted a bunch of stuff. Okay. Yeah. And... Rule 37 of the Federal Rules of Civil Procedure has kind of offered a little bit of a, a sanctuary for certain instances. Now, um, the deletion or the spoilation has to be intentional for sanctions to be imposed. So that has offered a little bit of protection. If you can, there, there's a um, a test for, you know, whether or not it's sanctionable or not. And it comes down to, you know, was it intentionally deleted? Was it inadvertently deleted? Was it deleted through some kind of a retention policy? Can it be restored? And that's the big question is, can it be restored or can it be replaced? If it can be restored, it can be replaced. Sanctions are not imposed now under the rule 37. However, if there was an intention, the federal rules, the right? Federal what about rules. the Arizona state rules? Um, the Arizona state rules generally follow the federal rules on that issue. Um, but if data has been intentionally deleted or removed or not followed under a retention policy and the intent was there to, you know, delete the evidence and then sanctions, um, you know, we see those typically being imposed. Yeah. We, what we typically will do right at the beginning is we'll send a litigation hold letter or what we call a preservation letter where it says, Hey, look, we don't know what the future of litigation holds. There's a bunch of electronic data you have. You need to make sure you take steps to preserve it. Don't delete it. Don't modify it. Don't touch it. Blah, blah, blah. And if you do, 
then we set a couple of cases saying that you could be held guilty, and even if the evidence isn't there, you're, you're, there are implied admissions of guilt. Um, I assume you guys have the same type of letter that you're sending out in the beginning. Is that one thing that comes into evidence later on to prove that they intentionally deleted something or modified something? I think it absolutely can. And the, the notice of preservation is, is very important. And we try to send those out, you know, in each litigation to, you know, for the same reasons that you just said to give that notice of, you know, we don't, we don't know exactly what's going to be discoverable, but we have, um, you know, reason to believe that a litigation is, pen, is you know, going to be pending. So uh, save all that data and, and preserve it. And then, you know, at least that, um, that covers the, the lawyers and, and the, the law firms, but to have that counsel and that consultation with your clients and explain to them, you know, why they need to keep things that might be relevant unless, you know, they've already are, you know, have a retention policy in place that they follow. And, you know, then that's can be defensible too. Hey, we don't need to go back beyond this retention policy. This is how long we keep our messaging or this is how long we keep our emails or, you know, files on a, on a certain case. Um, so if, uh, if a law firm or not, I shouldn't say a law firm because they, they may keep files for five years, three years, whatever right. state bar requires what three years. I think so. Um, but let's say the, the board of an association has a retention policy for their corporate records. Um, that goes back five years on some records permanent for others. And then one year for, let's say ballots for voting. If the ballots for voting were deleted after the one year mark and they have the retention policy that says you can do that, it's not sanctionable at that point. Then if somebody's trying to get the ballots within a year or two or year three, right? That's right. Um, the only, you know, caveat to that is just once they would get the notice of preservation from from you or from, you know, wh whoever tells them, you know, there's a litigation that could be upcoming. Now you need to start preserving the data at that time. Then you would want to not, you know, continue to delete under that retention policy. Yeah, it's a great point. So you're uh, the opposing party and I represent the board. You're the homeowner and I send you the preservation demand letter. And uh, you're like, oh, well, I've got a retention policy um, or the, the homeowner sends a demand to the board and they're like, well, OK, well, let's look at everything we have. And they start deleting after. So let's give an example. You want the ballots since we're on the ballots of like a let's say there's a board election three years ago and uh, you want to dispute that election because you don't think the board member was properly appointed to the board and elected to the board, whatever. So three years later, you sue the board as a homeowner and you send them through your attorney, the preservation demand and the ballots are still there, even though the retention policy said they could be deleted and purged a year after a year. So they're there. The opposing counsel, the HOA board attorney receives this preservation demand. You're saying if the attorney looked at the record retention policy and said, oh, you know what? Uh, we don't necessarily have to have ballots, so let's just delete them now. If they're there, they're there. And you can't delete them even if it's post uh, the one-year mark then, right? That's right. And if, if the board were to delete them, that would be what? I think that would be a strong argument for spoilation <laughs> of, of evidence and, and, you know, potentially sanctions. Yeah, okay. So let's talk about those sanctions. Let's say the board, for whatever reason, deletes those ballots after the preservation demand because um, they know that it's a problem or they just feel like it's a problem and 
They just want to get rid of the evidence. What what can happen in the sanctions process? So the the court can impose you know um, monetary sanctions um, in that situation. They can also um, an adverse inference to the jury should the case be going to trial, and that can be pretty big. Um, you know where the jury's advised that of of what happened, and they can take that into consideration when they're when they're ruling. So there's a few different avenues of you know that sanctions that could, that could happen. Yeah, the adverse inference. I've never seen a case where an adverse inference is given to the jury or the judge where the person that deleted whatever won the case. <laughs> they usually, every time I've seen it, they've lost. Right. And I was actually involved in a litigation a couple of years ago and the opposing counsel um, had earlier on in the litigation taken a deposition and asked their client um, if, or, or I think it was actually our attorney was asking their client, you know, were you ever given a notice of preservation? Answer was no. You know, did you retain certain electronic data? No. You know, all these different things. And that came up in the pretrial and in, in an adverse inference was going to be given to the jury. The case ended up settling before it actually went in front of the jury, but that may have been, you know, part of the reason that that settlement came to fruition. Sure. Cases settle. Sometimes they settle because the parties just are done with it. Sometimes they settle because they know there's a big problem. Right, right, <laughs> exactly. So I didn't get to see how it how it shook out, you know, with the adverse inference, but but it definitely was the an issue, and and it was going to uh, go to the jury like that. Yeah. So let me give you another example, um, and you tell me what you think. Uh, let's say that the homeowner now in this ballots example wants to come into the management company and with their third party and start imaging the management company's servers and the management company's computers and um, the ma HOA manager's cell phone and all the board members' cell phones. What do you think? I think that you need to think about proportionality because what you just described is a very global and expensive endeavor. Um, so in situations like that, I think it's smart for both sides to really, you know, hone in on, you know, what data do we need and where does it sit and how are we going to get it without having to do, you know, a forensic image of all of your information, including your servers and things like that, because um, it does drive up the costs of, of litigation for both sides to how do How much do you think it costs for your third party to go image a server for the management company in that scenario? Oh, I mean, I, I think it would really just depend on the volume of data and the amount of time we see. We, we do some get some flat rates for collections when we specify like, hey, we need a Gmail account or, hey, we have one custodian at a, at a client. You know, we can get some, some predictable pricing on that. Um, but when we tell somebody to go in and we've got to image an entire server or something like that, that, that could be completely varied. It's hourly, it's, right? And it goes to an hourly rate. It's so an hourly for us, anyways. It's it goes to an hourly rate, and and the hours are just hard to predict. Um, you know, depending on the complexity of the network architecture that's that's there. Yeah, what I've seen for rates wise, they're just as expensive as attorneys. In from what I've seen, yeah, right? as expensive if not more than right. you know some of the lower, um, you know, younger associate, associate, associate rates. rates. Absolutely, yeah. Sure, I've seen anywhere from two fifty an hour to. 650 an hour. Right. Yeah. And especially I, when it comes to them testifying in court, right? Testifying in court, it gets, yeah, it gets very expensive. Um, the 250 to 300 for the hourly rate is generally what we're seeing to, for the collections piece of it. Um, forensic analysis, when they, you know, do a deeper dive into the data, I see rates going up more like what you just described, even up to maybe $600 an hour. So going back to this example on 
let's say the homeowner gets in and finds some destruction of evidence because they were able to image the servers and find that and prove that they were deleted after the preservation letter was given. And it cost them $20,000 in, you know, expert witness for their expert to go in and do that. It seems to me that that might be a sanction too, right? To reimburse the association or I'm sorry, to re reimburse that homeowner for sure. that, that or, money. Yeah, absolutely. An argument for cost, cost shifting um, because, you know, there's an abs, you know, an argument that can be made easily that they shouldn't have had to come out of pocket for that. Yeah. So um, let me ask you this. We've talked a lot about emails, electronic data, some of the e-discovery processes. If you could give um, HOA managers and board of directors on HOA boards advice, like a piece of advice, what would be the, the, the thing you'd want every one of them to know and do? I think um, to keep their emails and their communications organized and to be cognizant of what they're saying in emails and just potentially, you know, down the road, think about the fact that they could become discoverable in a matter should it become a litigation issue and to keep those, you know, separated from personal and, you know, take those steps, retention policies, if they can put those in place and they can follow them and have a repeatable you know, defensible process that they use again and again, I think that's going to benefit them in the long run. So make sure you understand that keep your emails clean. <laughs> keep your emails clean and nothing's ever deleted, deleted. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Have a adopt a re records retention policy and live by the records retention policy, right? Yes. That's a perfect world. <laughs> <laughs> right. That's the perfect world. That's and we all know world. that doesn't happen. We deviate often. from that a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, Jennifer, thank you so very much for your time. I found today's discussion very beneficial for me, and I'm sure my audience was will, will be very pleased with, with your answers and, and the insight that you give to us on this electronic data. Thank you very much. Great. Thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it. You bet. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.